Hello and welcome to Cardio Care Now, a special podcast series led by Dr. Seth Martin. Dr. Martin is a cardiologist and an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or consultant 360. Welcome back to the Cardio Care Now podcast. Really appreciate everyone tuning back in. I am excited for the conversation today with Dr. Kapil Perrick, who is someone I've known for a number of years, dating back to when he was my attending in the Hopkins CCU. And he's just had a fascinating career since then, since his time as an academic cardiologist and heart failure specialist at Hopkins. Kapil's gone on to work as a White House fellow in Washington, and then to wear different hats at Google and has tremendous insights to share uh, around the role of technology in the worlds of medical care and and cardiology, and um, has specifically been leading efforts with respect to wearables, which is going to be the focus of our discussion today. We really want to understand the science around wearables, what can be done today and what's coming down the line uh, in terms of the role of wearables in clinical practice. So Kapil, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast and looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you, Seth, and really appreciate that generous introduction. You know, you've had such an amazing career since our time at Hopkins and really glad to be here together. So let's kick things off. I think, first of all, it would be great just for the audience to learn a bit more about yourself and your your journey. I, I alluded to to some of it, but you've had this exciting career path. And I'm just curious for the audience to learn more about what really drives you and what's led you to take the career path that, that you have as you think about the impact that you'll have on patients in the world of medicine. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I've been incredibly lucky. I did medical school in Zambia, came to the U.S. for further training at Hopkins, where we met, and I explored a number of different paths. But I think the common theme in my journey has been one around trying to increase my impact Growing up in Zambia and doing medical school there, I saw, you know, a lot of challenges, many of which revolved around public health and people, you know, essentially for lack of resources, dying from diseases that were entirely preventable. And I explored a number of paths to see how I could expand my impact. Initially, I did a master's of public health thinking that would be my path and then pursued research thinking that would be it. And then program building in academic medicine policy as a White House fellow. And then finally, I found a home at Google where working through technology and reaching, in some cases, billions of people has been a wonderful opportunity. In short, you could say I could have benefited from some career guidance early on, <laughs> but I explored a number of different paths and fortunately have found one that that's, uh, seems to be a great fit. For sure. And it's been great to collaborate with you, get to learn from you over the years. I think it, let's start diving into our topic at hand, wearables. So, you know, we have a lot of clinicians in the audience, many of whom will be familiar with wearables, but I think it is helpful just to level set from the beginning, just to define, you know, what are we talking about with wearables, the the basic ideas around how they can be applied in medical and cardiovascular care, and then we can dig further under the surface from there. Thanks, Seth. That's a great question. You know, wearables covers a broad range of devices, and that includes things like smartwatches, which are probably the most common, but trackers, as well as rings, even shoes and jackets, so on. The common thread is that these all have sensors that can detect things like movement, heart rate, or sleep, and provide that to the user, often through a smartphone app. 
there's a lot that can be can be measured and a lot of potential here. Certain areas have taken the leading position in the race, so to speak, in the world of cardiology. Atrial fibrillation has been one of those. Sure. Should should we dig into uh, AFib as an example up front around what's being measured there? What does it mean? What can be done with the data? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one to start with. So, you know, many wearables can detect heart rate in a couple of cases. For example, Fitbit is a range of devices that do this. And the Apple Watch, there's a a couple of those that do that as well. They look at the regularity of heart rate. So this is a photoplethysmography-based signal. If you've seen uh, any traces in in patients where they look at uh, pulse oximetry, it's a similar technology shine a light through the skin, get it back, and you look at the changes in the light characteristics, and you can detect a pulse. And so what what the algorithms do is they they take periods of inactivity when somebody is not moving, and and that reduces noise and and false pulses coming through photoplethysmography. And what that tells you is if it is irregularly irregular, as we all know with atrial fibrillation, then the user can get an alert to say that you might have an irregular heart rhythm and go speak to a doctor about it. Some of the key things here is that because it's done in periods of inactivity, for example, Fitbit has a multi-day battery life and is often used in sleep. That's when many of these episodes are detected. And so it, it tells you, you know, in those periods, kind of what's happening. The other thing is that the algorithm tends to to take 30 minutes worth of data and look for recurrent periods of irregularity in this. So it's not just a one-off thing that it just happens. Finally, users don't get notified in the moment. It tends to be an after-the-fact notification because of the way things are processed. So it's not like you find out right as soon as you go into atrial fibrillation, but rather sort of sometime after the fact, usually a few hours. The other piece that's really important about this is that the FDA clearance that both Fitbit and Apple have gotten are around detection of atrial fibrillation, but not a diagnosis. The diagnosis still has to be confirmed with a medical grade device, such as a patch like a Zeo patch or any of the other patches that are out there, a Holter monitor or event recorder, something else that is medical grade that can confirm this diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. So that's one example of how wearables can detect irregular heart rhythm and eventually lead to a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. The other feature, which is interesting and exciting, is that many wearables, Fitbit, Apple, Withings, Samsung, can capture an electrocardiogram or an ECG. Now, this is a single lead ECG that's usually qualitatively similar to lead one. So, you know, the electrical impulse across the left and right arms. Many of these companies have similar algorithms that can tell a user whether that ECG trace is sinus rhythm or atrial fibrillation or inconclusive. And there are certain reasons why these can be inconclusive. And sometimes it's poor signal quality. Sometimes it's the heart rate is really too fast to tell the regularity, et cetera. But these are two different ways in which you can facilitate the detection of atrial fibrillation. And again, even with a single lead ECG that has to be confirmed with a medical grade device, it's not a diagnosis, it's more of a detection. So somebody who, for example, might be more of a symptomatic person decides to check a single lead ECG and they figure it out. But this is all really exciting and has happened over the last like four or five years. And we're still figuring out exactly how to deploy these and in which populations they can be most impactful. Thanks, Kapil. Thanks for that really clear description. I I really like how you highlighted the difference between detection and 
diagnosis and kind of at a high level, it speaks to the general concept that often technology is not going to totally replace clinicians or the medical system, but there's this collaboration or synergy between the two kind of the two kind of entities. And, and so the, the technology can help augment what's happening in clinical care, help identify more people, and they can plug into the traditional medical system, receive a formal diagnosis, and then care can flow from there. So yeah, um, absolutely. It's complementary. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, so let's maybe let's dive some more into day-to-day clinical care, where we are today with the integration of wearable data, where we're going. In addition to AFib, be interested to kind of hear where, where you think we are today in terms of what can be used from consumer wearables and how that can complement clinical care. Yeah, absolutely. So I love this complementary relationship that you've described. I think that's exactly the right framing to think of it. So, you know, we see patients every three, six months, sometimes yearly, and there are long periods basically between our visits. And we often don't know what's happening to our patients in between visits. And what wearables can help do is fill in those gaps. And I think they help fill them in in a couple of different important ways. So one is just lifestyle changes. So we know whether it's diabetes, hypertension, coronary disease, even atrial fibrillation, the first line recommendation is around lifestyle changes. Whether it's changes in physical activity, I think generally recommended across the board to increase physical activity, changes in diet, whether it's cutting down sugar if you're a diabetic or salt if you're hypertensive and so on and so forth. There's a number of lifestyle changes that we recommend. And what wearables can help do is to turn this advice into action and make it easier for clinicians to help patients along that journey. I was actually talking to a physical medicine expert who's a a sports and exercise physician. She's worked with all the way from Olympic athletes to helping write some of the guidelines. And and what she described is the lack of physical activities associated with 6% of excess mortality in the world. And when you compare to smoking, which is about 8%, that's pretty close. And so just like we talk to our patients about smoking and we can counsel them, I think we can counsel them similarly about physical activity. And what these tools do is make it easy to talk about. It's an actionable thing. You can ask what their metrics were before your visit or set goals for you know period after the visit. And so I think it's, it's just a way to, to bridge the gap between visits and help people sort of adhere to the recommendations. Right. You get that insight into what's been happening in the home and the community between visits and physical activity has been one of those pieces that that has been focused on with wearables, partly because it's measurable, but it has such broad clinical and public health importance from, you know, primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, uh, you know, all the way to heart failure, including heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. There was just a Jack article that came out showing really the importance of physical activity in, in HEFPEF. I, so I wonder when, you know, if you're seeing one of your own patients in clinic and kind of going through their wearable data, including the physical activity data, what do you, you know, what do you focus on? What do you, what do you trust? What do you maybe discard a little bit more and say, you know what, I'm not sure about the, the accuracy of that. How do you think about these data when you're there in the clinic with your patients? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love how you make it sort of bring it down to the practical nitty gritty of it. You know, I think that the 
key thing to remember is a lot of this data, with the exception of the atrial fibrillation data, is wellness data or consumer grade data. So while it's useful and important, it's not medical grade data. So as a cardiologist, for example, I might see somebody's heart rate trends on their Fitbit or other wearable device. I can't actually use that to titrate a beta blocker dose because it's not medical grade heart rate. Doesn't mean it's useless, but it's not intended for diagnosing or treating or managing conditions. It's much more intended around lifestyle changes. So then what do I actually look at with that disclaimer? Physical activity, let's just double click on that since you already mentioned you know, the importance of this. There are two main guidelines. So if you look at the scientific report that the government put out on physical activity, which is about 770 pages long, recommended if you have insomnia, but I could summarize it in just a few words. So what they recommend is to reduce sedentary time, basically move more. And the, the metric to look at there is honestly steps. So Fitbit popularized 10,000 steps, but really it's just a more of a directional thing. You want people to getting more steps, right? Like for some folks, if their baseline is 3,000, 10,000 is too far away, try and reach for four or 5,000. It's one of them gradually increasing over time, but really important just to get them moving. And then the second part of the physical activity guidelines is they recommend 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And you could get either 75 minutes a week of vigorous, 150 minutes of moderate, or some combination thereof. Now that's a mouthful to say, let alone decipher. Devices like Fitbit make it easy because it's 150 active zone minutes per week or more. And the way users get awarded active zone minutes is based on their heart rate and their heart rate reserve, which is based on their resting heart rate. If you're in a certain zone, you get one active zone minute for every minute of moderate physical activity. And if you're in a second, more vigorous zone, you get two active zone minutes for every minute of vigorous activity. And so you don't have to do the math of like, was it 75 minutes of vigorous or you know 150 minutes of moderate or some combination? If you get 150 active zone minutes or more, that's great. You've achieved you know, the, the recommendation. And the recommendation is at least 150. So there's benefits up to 300. The relationship between moderate or vigorous physical activity and health benefits, various types in the literature tends to be curvilinear. So what that means is when you go from, you know, very sedentary, like let's say 10 or 20 active zone minutes per week to even moderately more like 30, 40, 50 active zone minutes per week, that increase is associated with a greater inflection in your health benefits than if you went from 200 active zone minutes a week to 250 active zone minutes a week. So really the, the greatest benefit is at the lower end of the spectrum. Not that you, sh you won't get benefits further on, but for all those folks that we think are rather sedentary and hard to get moving, it's important to remember that these are the folks that have the greatest health benefits from physical activity. So I'll stop there on physical activity real quick and then transition over to a, a couple of other areas. So aside from physical activity, many of these devices look at sleep. So for example, uh, we partner with the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and they have two main recommendations that you can you know, look at the, like a Fitbit or any other uh, device data to look at. There are two main recommendations around sleep duration, which is a sufficient amount of sleep every week, uh, ideally every day, and then consistency, which is you want to have a consistent level of sleep every day over the course of the week and not like sleeping less on weekdays and more on weekends, but rather that consistency because of this clock. And sleep is actually becoming more and more recognized in cardiovascular disease. The American Heart Association has a checklist, Life Simples 8s. It used to be Life Simple 7s but they added sleep duration to it to make it life simple eight. 
And it's a, a checklist to help prevent cardiovascular disease, both primary and secondary prevention, that sort of thing. So sleep is another area that, that I tend to look at in addition to physical activity. I'll stop That's there because fam- I've said a whole bunch of stuff, but, but I'll <laughs> yeah. let you react to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's fantastic. I, I love, um, first of all, with physical activity, how you how you broke things down there and, and emphasized, for example, in those that have a, a, a lower level, there is that even greater potential to have an, an impact, but we need to make sure we don't give somebody with a step count of a thousand per day, uh, an initial goal of 10,000 per day. We need to set realistic goals and gradually work up from there. And, and I love that you brought in sleep, especially given that's such a timely hot topic with the AHA just releasing their essential eight that brings in sleep data. That's something where I personally feel like I, in my clinic, it's been less prominent. I think the physical activity data has kind of more naturally been something patients bring in, but the sleep data, there's, there's room for growth. And I imagine that may be the case in other clinicians clinics. So thank you for bringing that in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot to dig into these things, but once you start to develop that basic understanding of both the physical activity and the sleep stuff, much like we talk to our patients about smoking, I have a few standard things, you know, do you smoke, how much, and then start going into like, would a patch benefit you, gum, et cetera. Once you develop that quick repertoire of like a few hit list things that you want to touch base on, you can efficiently inc- incorporate this into a visit. We all know we're pressed for time and, and it becomes challenging. The other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is sort of building these into clinical programs. So aside from what an individual clinician can do, I know you've done some great work in Corey Health around incorporating technology into care pathways and post-discharge. We collaborate with a cardiologist in Ireland who's actually, over the course of the pandemic, used Fitbit to turn her cardiac rehab program into a virtual program. And essentially what they've done is they give patients who are signing up for cardiac rehab Fitbit devices and they also have an app and a dashboard. And so essentially in the app, patients can report their symptoms and whether they're taking medication and so on. And Fitbit keeps track of their steps and you know uh, other metrics as we've discussed. And nurses will give them a call every week, uh, sort of whatever the, the schedule is for cardiac rehab. And they'll discuss n- not just in the abstract, but very specifically like, hey, how's your activity levels here? Your step counts, here's your active zone minutes. How's that coming along? And then they'll go through symptoms and medication adherence and so on and so forth. And what they found is that, you know, not only are patients more likely to complete this kind of cardiac rehab because the virtual components of the logistics of it are much simpler. You don't have to drive and so on, but that patients are more satisfied with it. They feel monitored because of the device. They feel like they're connected to the hospital more and the care teams more. Remember, this is an anxious period. People just had a heart attack, so they like this idea of being connected. And and as a result, they're more likely to take their medicines. They have better control of their cholesterol, their blood pressure, and so on and so forth, and are much less likely to go back into the hospital. And I know Dr. Connolly is working on publishing this and these results, and she's presented some work at the European Society of Cardiology. And we're also looking into scaling this up across the NHS. But you can see how, from this example, if you build the wearable into a greater program. So it's not left just in the individual clinician to look at that data, build it into that visit. While that's important too, you can build a care pathway that maybe involves a nurse or other parts of the care team who can help manage this data and action on it, and then really make the most of it so that patients get the benefit from it, but without overwhelming the doctor or the clinical care team. 
Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. I'm really glad you you brought up that example of program building and highlighting what Dr. Connolly's done in, in Ireland. I'm definitely excited and inspired by the efforts there. And, and there's parallel efforts in the U.S. here through our American Heart Association Health Tech Network to scale up cardiac rehab access using technology. I think uh, this actually may be a good chance to kind of pivot to conversations around equity and, and the digital divide, because in addition to augmenting existing cardiac rehab programs for people that can come into the hospital then to be able to to augment the interactions with those participants at at home or to shift some of their cardiac rehab sessions to the home there's this relating concept of of health equity because the minority of of people that qualify for cardiac rehab participate in, in cardiac rehab whether you're in the US or Ireland or or elsewhere. And then there's these long waiting lists to get into cardiac rehab, which really speaks to the need to be more efficient and to, to scale the ability to deliver cardiac rehab to more interested people. And so I wonder if we could have some conversation around health equity, how you're thinking about that, because there's the, the concern that the technologies could be accessible only to those that have the resources to personally purchase technologies. And, and certainly that's a real concern that needs to be addressed. But then on the other hand, there's the potential to reach more people, to meet them where they are with the technology and, and actually to improve equity. And so I think it's a pretty pretty big topic. And, and certainly in the years ahead, I think is going to become increasingly part of the conversations around technology as it relates to medical care. So I wanted to learn from you on this topic, what your latest thinking is around the digital divide and, and health equity. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. I mean, we have a, a whole team focused on health equity, and I actually really like how you frame that. So let, let's start with how you started, which is, you know, absolutely, cardiac rehab, it takes a certain level of privilege to drop everything and come to a facility three times a week for several hours to exercise and be part of this rehabilitation program so you can get back on your feet. And many times, either our patients or their caregivers who transport them, et cetera, have jobs they cannot get away from, transportation challenges, and so on and so forth. And so the folks that do turn up tend to be relatively more privileged than those who are not able to make it. So really being able to deliver programs like cardiac rehab in the home through technology that's provided by either an insurance company or in the UK by the NHS is one way to sort of level the playing field a little bit. We have decades of research that show the benefits of cardiac rehab, but it's only reaching a fraction of the people that are eligible for it. So this way you can increase access and make it more equitable. So I think there's a huge sort of potential of technology on the other angle, you know, I do agree that there is, you know, concern that technology might only be available to those that can afford it. So speaking of Fitbit, for example, there's a whole host of devices. So many of our features are available on every single device, starting from relatively low-cost activity trackers all the way out to the fancy smartwatches that, that we make. But in addition, we work closely with partners, insurance companies in the U.S., folks like NHS in the U.K. and all around the world, to try and provide devices at either discounted or free to patients as part of clinical programs and other health and wellness programs so that we can reach the people who sort of need it the most. The last thing is, you know, like you said, as we sort of move to the future, it's really important to build research 
and, and explore these areas further. So the Fitbit Health Equity Research Initiative awarded grants to a number of folks who are looking at everything from postpartum care for rural Black women to sleep in transgender youth to diabetes progression in Latino adults using the tools that Fitbit has to see if they can address some of the challenges around health equity. Thanks, Kapil. That's really helpful the way you're thinking about it. And, you know, you make a good point around coverage through insurance companies and the collaboration between the technology companies, the the manufacturers and insurance companies. Uh, We had a recent experience in Maryland where we were able to successfully collaborate between our team at Hopkins and HA and other stakeholders to pass legislation at a state level to provide access to blood pressure monitors for the Medicaid population. And I, I think it's not too unreasonable to think that down the, you know, years down the line, as the evidence builds, as you say, yep. that there could be legislation that actually covers wearables for the Medicaid population and, and that that becomes more of a commonly covered benefit for insurance across the board. Yeah, I mean, first of all, congratulations. That's a fantastic initiative. I think in terms of the evidence base, I think people don't recognize the level of rich evidence that currently exists. So just for context, there are about 1,500 published studies that reference Fitbit so far. There's an independent meta-analysis that was done last year that looked at physical activity programs, whether they included uh, Fitbit or not. And this meta-analysis looked at 37 randomized control trials and found that trials that included a Fitbit as part of the intervention versus those that did not tended to have more movement, uh, so more steps in a day, more activity, as well as greater weight loss. And so these are surrogate measures and eventually translate into bigger health benefits. But that's a pretty rich evidence base to begin with. And I think it's one of those things where folks don't quite realize that the extent to which these devices have already been studied and, and the amount of sort of evidence that exists right now. That's a great point. That's a great point. It's been such a fast moving field. And we, we know that there's such a lag in evidence to guideline adoption to clinical practice implementation that can take over a decade that there is that when, when the, the field of technology and evidence is moving so fast, there, there could be that big lag, which I think as we kind of get towards the close of our conversation, that may be a good segue to talk about. I hope that our conversation today is helpful to clinicians having a better understanding of where we are. But if they're interested in learning more, I wonder what other high yield resources you may want to point people to, any call to actions that you have yeah. that, that would be helpful to our listeners. No, that's a, I think that's yeah. exactly right, right? There is this gap between evidence and action. And like we've built up the evidence space, there's, you know, FDA clearances, et cetera, there's a certain level of rigor that's gone into these devices. And yet, like many clinicians on the front lines don't know how to use them or what to do. It's something I'm personally interested in working on. You know, if you search provider and Fitbit, you'll find a provider facing page on Fitbit that we helped launch in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine that lists out some of the features and, you know, what the guidelines recommend and how you connect the different features to the different guidelines. But really there is a, a, a big need for education for CME and just other sort of venues around wearables. You know, um, people come to us in clinic with 
data from wearables and, and just from other online research, et cetera. And it's, an, it's a sign that they're engaged in their health and that they, they want to do more to help themselves. And it's an opportunity for clinicians to take that enthusiasm and channel it in an appropriate way. Somebody with hypertension may need more movement or more mental health support in terms of mindfulness or deep breathing, relaxation to bring down their blood pressure. But if a clinician isn't aware of all of this, they may just ignore that data and that opportunity. And one is it's a lost opportunity to build a pa the patient relationship and you know, uh, acknowledge a patient's work in, in what they're doing and guide them in the right way. But even more, it's a, it's a lost opportunity to help improve their health in a meaningful way. So I do think there's a ton of opportunity around building more resources to help clinicians make the most of wearables. Thanks, Kapil. So I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'd like to thank you so much for your leadership in this area, for helping teach me and, and everyone that's tuning in. And clearly, we're going to need as many clinicians to be engaged in shaping the way that wearables enter into clinical practice. And we've already come a, a long way in a short amount of time, but there's huge opportunities ahead from fitness to, to sleep to AFib and, and so much more beyond that. But those have been some leading areas. I did, I, I would be remiss if I didn't pull in a very concise quote you had on LinkedIn recently around fitness. You, you've looked at a lot of the evidence here and you said, it all kind of comes down to move more huff and puff sometimes. I love, I, I just love that. Thanks. <laughs> I yeah, feel that's like my, my six word condensation of 700 pages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and wearables can help measure that objectively between clinical visits. And, and so I, I really am looking forward to hearing more feedback from listeners to continuing this conversation in the future. I really wanted to thank you, Kapil, for your, your time and joining us today on the Cardio Care Now podcast. Oh, thank you, Seth. It's, it's been wonderful. And you know, it's an exciting time and the future is even more bright. So lots of work to be done, no question. But like Fitbit, for example, just launched this continuous EDA sensor. It's a passive sensor that looks at uh, sweatiness of the skin. It's a measure of stress. And I, you know, my thesis when I was doing my PhD in epidemiology was around depression and heart disease. And the only way I could understand what was happening with patients and, and subjects was either you had to ask them a questionnaire or you had to interview them by psychologists or psychiatrists. And now we have a passive way to look at somebody's sort of stress levels and mental health, which is super exciting. And I think it'll be really interesting how this gets incorporated into clinical care and what sort of use cases come out of this. So yeah, I'm sure we'll have more conversations in the future and uh, it's a really exciting time in this field. For sure, Thanks, for man. sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to circling back on that. that that's super exciting. Thanks, Kapil. Thank you. For more cardiology content, visit our website, consultant360.com.